everybody. Welcome to episode 222 of the Running Rogue podcast. This is your host, Chris McClung, and I'm coming to you from a snowy Austin, Texas. I've lived here in Texas for 41 years, and I don't think I've woken up to a morning quite like today as we got six inches of dry powder outside overnight, which makes makes for a crazy, crazy outdoor scene here in Texas. I hope everybody who's listening from Texas is staying warm and safe, as I know many are without power and struggling as we are not used to these type of conditions But I will say that if you can get outside and at least play a little bit in the snow, then do that because it is is a once in a lifetime opportunity for sure. This morning, I was out with the kids. We were sledding on a hill near the house and we actually saw somebody snowboarding down a hill on one of the streets here in our neighborhood, which is something I have never seen in Texas, which is pretty nuts. So pretty crazy conditions here. Again, hope everybody's staying warm and safe. For today's episode, I'm going to jump into a tough topic, and I suspect there will be many out there that may disagree with me on this, but we're going to be talking about the concept of race weight and my theory that that is actually a myth, that it's not a concept that we should be thinking about. It's not a concept you should be using to orchestrate your training. And instead, you should be focusing on the process versus what the scale sets. So we're going to talk about that in a second. Before we get there, by way of intro, I wanted to tell the story of L. Purrier. We've got some indoor track meets happening, and the New Balance Grand Prix went off this past weekend. There was lots of amazing results, but one in particular struck me, which is that of L. Purrier. She is... Already the U.S. indoor one-mile record holder, something that she set last year in indoors. And now she is the U.S. two-mile record holder, running 9-10 this past weekend at the New Balance Grand Prix to beat Jenny Simpson's current record by eight seconds. Absolutely unbelievable result. And she did it more or less from the front. There were some pacemakers out there to help get things going. But then she and Emma Coburn were off the front and El Perrier would pull away from Emma over the final 600 meters to beat her by five seconds. And Emma was also under that previous record. So pretty amazing result there for both Emma and El to get that American record. And I wanted to talk a little bit about the results, not so much about the specific time, because obviously we're seeing a lot of fast times. Like he has their Alpha Fly technology that has moved to the track, and now New Balance apparently also has some, some advanced technology that they're putting to work on the track. And I think that's leading to many of the fast times, for better or for worse, that we're seeing in both indoor and outdoor. But more than that, I just wanted to tell L story a little bit because I think the most important part of these types of results in track and field is to not forget the stories, the backgrounds, the histories of some of these athletes so that you can get bought into not just the fast time, but also to the person. And I think L has a pretty fascinating story and I don't know that it's been told as often as others. So I wanted to talk a little bit about that for those that want to dig into it a little bit more, I can, I will link a Runner's World article in the show notes that I read for this introduction. But she grew up in a small town 
of Vermont and basically grew up on her parents' dairy farm. And she was up early every morning, apparently milking cows before she would head off to school. And obviously was doing a lot of other work around the farm, including raising a couple of pigs. And she would help raise, feed those pigs, as well as help those two pigs have little piglets that they would eventually sell off as a part of the money making for the farm. And so she lived the farm life. And then in school, she not only ran track, but also was a captain and point guard for the basketball team. And so was a multi-sport athlete that would eventually focus more on running as she went to the University of New Hampshire for her collegiate experience. But pretty cool story to come from growing up on a farm in Vermont to being now an American record holder. And her coach talks about how she has a really rigorous and hard work work ethic from that time on the farm that she now carries with her into her professional career. But pretty cool story there. She is not someone who had amazing results in college, solid, but not amazing results in college. So I don't think many would be able to say that they, that she would now be an American record holder, but she is. And I think partially that's attributed to a very slow and steady build from a multi-sport athlete in high school to gradually building through college and then ultimately really starting to see her potential as a professional. So pretty cool story there for Elle. She was also recently apparently married at her parents' farm during the pandemic last year. So another side of that story, which is fascinating. So congrats to Elle Purrier for that two-mile American record to go with her one-mile American record indoors. She is someone certainly to watch as we head into the Olympic trials later this year in the mile 1500 as well as the 5k all right so that's a quick intro just want to tell Elle's story a little bit she's certainly someone to watch in this olympic year let's talk about my topic today it's going to be a mix of sort of training tips around this topic but also just talking about the mentality associated with this concept and it's it's a tough topic, and I think there will be coaches out there who might listen that will rigorously disagree with me, and they'll say, of course, race weight matters. Of course, that's something that you should focus on, but I just fundamentally disagree. It is not something I've ever, ever talked about with athletes getting to a specific weight, and I think for the most part, that type of mentality is dangerous and it's akin to putting the cart in front of the horse putting a specific number on the scale as a goal and prioritizing that over physical performance but before we jump into talking about the nuances of that I wanted to set one framework and baseline around how do we think about our bodies and I should say that I recently did a Instagram live with Jesse Barnes, who has been a guest on this show, and we talked about this topic, and she brought up a quote that I often use that I think is absolutely paramount in thinking about body image, but also race weight, which is a quote from Bill Bowerman, co-founder of Nike, also former University of Oregon coach, and he said, if you have a body, you're an athlete. If you have a body, you're an athlete. Essentially, 
if you were born in this world in any form, regardless of the form, then you are an athlete. And it's just a question of whether or not you're owning that idea. All of us are athletes. All of us are born to be athletes. And the question is, are you owning that idea? What does owning it look like? Owning it is training it. Owning it is expecting something from it, which is going to be different for all of us, depending on what our, what our goals might be. And it's okay to want our body to do more than it currently does. It's okay to want it to do more than it currently does. It's not okay, though, to say that you can't or to think that you can't or to frame your thinking in a way that says, I'm not worthy of X or of Y or of being able to do something because we're all capable. I recently interviewed Ali Joad from with the Clean Sport Collective podcast, and he was actually born without legs from essentially the knees down. And yet he's a Paralympian powerlifting athlete and has found a way, even being born without legs, to exercise his ability as an athlete. And obviously he's doing it at a high level, but I truly believe that regardless of what form our bodies were were made, we can own being an athlete. For some of us, running is going to be the thing that we pursue. And if you're listening to this podcast, it probably is for you. But obviously for others, that may not be the thing. And whatever your movement practice is, you can achieve athleticism in any movement practice. Obviously, we're talking about running for this one. And so I'll remind you again, it's okay to want your body to do more. That's why we train. It's not okay to say I can't or I'm not worthy. Which brings up a corollary point and this idea that I've actually seen floating around social media a little bit recently, which is what defines a runner? And there are sometimes... There's sometimes some snobbery out there about how you can be defined as a runner versus a jogger versus a walker versus whatever you might want to label this form of movement. And I will say that if you put on your shoes and you go out and you spend any amount of time at a cadence that is a jog or a run more than a walk, then you're a runner. Period. The end. It is not complicated. We're all, we all have bodies. Therefore, we're all athletes. And the only way to then go from an athlete to a runner is to simply lace up your shoes and get out the door. That's it. For me, there is no bar to exceed beyond just getting out there and trying to do it. That's it. And so if that's something you struggle with, that label of am I worthy of being called a runner, then I will say all you need to do is put on your running shoes and step out the door. And then by my definition, you're a runner, which means you're worthy of the training associated with the things I talk about in this podcast. It also means you're worthy of goals that can extend beyond what you might think is possible for you. And so it's important 
to own that idea. If you have a body, you're an athlete. And if you're an athlete, you can be a runner simply by putting on a pair of running shoes and walking out the door to go for a run. They may not even have to be running shoes. You can run in any form of shoes, really. But just that act of putting one foot in front of the other makes you a runner. So own that. And then it's a question now of, okay, how do I actually step into my training and go after the goals that I want to achieve? And one thing you'll hear about on this podcast is the idea that anyone who's training in this sport we call running has access to and is worthy of the same training principles that elite athletes and professional runners have access to. That is something I fundamentally believe as a coach and something that I practice as a coach with my athletes is that I'm going to talk about and give you the same training principles, the same concepts, and in many cases, the same work as an elite athlete. Now, obviously, the paces might be different. The total volume might be different. Those things are tailored to the individual as they should be based on whatever your starting point is, but the same concepts apply. And you're worthy of those concepts and you are worthy of the training associated with those concepts. Okay, so I want to split this discussion as we talk about race weight into two parts. On one hand, there's the mental side of how do I actually embrace this concept. And then the second side of it, the second hand, is the actual physical training part. How do I put this concept into practice? And so I want to start with the mental side of the equation, and then we'll talk about the actual physical side of how this manifests in training. But the basic premise here that we're talking about is this idea that race weight, quote unquote race weight, is a myth. It is a myth. It's not something that you should focus on. So let's talk about the mental side. The mental side of this equation is that you have to be comfortable in your body. And I can tell you that being uncomfortable in your body or having insecurities about your body is an equal opportunity thing. There will be people with all shapes and sizes, of all shapes and sizes, that are uncomfortable with how they look for a variety of reasons. No one is immune. And you might look at someone else and say, oh, well, they have a body that is a body like I would like to have. They must have it all put together. And I can promise you that as often as you see that, you will also as often see situations where that person, for whatever reason, may also be insecure. And so this idea of body image is an equal opportunity concept. There is no body that is immune and no type of body that is immune from these types of insecurities. And so I think one part of this mental side is recognizing that you're not alone, that there are many people out there that are facing these challenges. And again, they may come in different forms for different people, but that's normal. But I guarantee you, everyone has insecurities. And the same is true. I often remind people about speed, about pace. I often have runners that are 
And again, I like to say there's no slow, only degrees of fast, but there are runners that are on, you know, one end of the spectrum on degrees of fast that might be lesser degrees of fast. And they will say that the athletes that have more degrees of fast probably have it all figured out, don't have any insecurities about how fast they might be or how their speed may compare to others. And I promise you that's not true. I promise you that no matter what, regardless for all of us, there's always somebody faster. And so even some of the most insecure athletes that I've worked with have been the ones that are on the higher end of the spectrum in terms of degrees of fast. So again, just like with pace, where there are insecurities across the spectrum, the same thing is true of body image, where there are insecurities across the spectrum. And while that's certainly tragic, it is also a thing that you can hold on to because it means you're not alone. And you could probably talk to anybody about these concepts and find a way to relate if you have these types of insecurities. Okay, so now that it's a given that we're all facing these types of questions and insecurities in our head, let's talk about some concepts that can help us move past them. One concept is this, which is that being happy with your body isn't about physical transformation. It's about mental transformation. So to me, this is a fundamental realization. All of us at various times are always thinking, if only I was X, then I would be faster, then I would be more confident, then I would be happier in my body. And the truth is that there is no amount of physical transformation that's going to solve that for you. It's all about mental transformation. And so in addition to realizing that you're not alone in these insecurities, another realization that's important is that it isn't about physical transformation being happy and comfortable in your body. It's about mental transformation, which means that the work to feel comfortable in your body isn't about physical training. It's about mental training and changing the dialogue in your head, changing the stories that you tell, your, that you tell yourself about your body. Now, we don't have time necessarily to dig into all of what that looks like, but I'll give you one little tidbit there, which is this idea of positive self-affirmation. There will often be a devil on our shoulder that will tell us in situations where we look in the mirror, maybe where we run a repeat too slow or don't hit our race goal that we want, that will tell us, that devil on our shoulder will tell us that it's because of some physical issue in our head. Maybe we think we need to lose X pounds. We think we need to train and to, to look a different way. But the truth is, that's just a story in our head. And so we have to reshape, reframe that story by replacing it with positive self-affirmations. And what I recommend with these is to write them down. Could be one thing, two things, three things. Post it somewhere prominent on a bathroom mirror, on a refrigerator door, and then repeat them out loud to yourself periodically, especially in moments when these types of insecurities pop up. I am strong and powerful in my body. Could be a an affirmation that you use to replace some negative self-talk. And so use positive self-talk as a tool, but recognize that being happy with your body isn't about physical transformation. It's about mental transformation. 
And some of you may say, hey, no, there's no way, Chris, if I was only five pounds lighter or if I only looked a little bit differently, then I would be satisfied and happy because I would be then getting the results that I want. And the truth is, if that actual transformation happened, that physical transformation happened, then there will be another horizon to climb, another hill to climb from a physical transformation standpoint that will just replace that previous one. So you'll you'll be on this slippery slope of always being unhappy because even once you reach that goal you think you should meet now, there will only be another one on the other side unless you do the work on the mental side again to change that dialogue in your head. And I don't want to minimize this at all because it is a challenging, difficult journey and probably one that for most of us is never ending, but we have to start somewhere. And we can start by simply replacing some of that negative self-talk with positive affirmations when those moments pop up so that you can gradually change your dialogue in your, in your head, retrain those inner thoughts, which really can make a huge difference. So that's one thing. Recognize that this is about mental transformation and not physical transformation. The the next point I want to make is that it's important, and this one I get from Jesse Diggins, who's talked about this. I, inter- I interviewed her for the Clean Sport podcast, and she talks about this in her book, Brave Enough. But she says, focus on what your body can do and not what it looks like. Focus on what your body can do and not what it looks like. One of the transformative experiences for me in this concept actually happened in the early 2000s. I was running the Chicago Marathon with my wife. She had a particular goal that year to run a certain time. And so I agreed to do it with her to try to help her to that goal. And so it was an opportunity for me to run at a little slower pace and to actually enjoy the experience in trying to help her toward her goal. And and I did that. And part of it, because that's a flat course and you're kind of just really immersed in the experience and there were times when she didn't want me talking to her. It was more about just being next to her and hitting a certain pace where I would look around and really soak in the experience, not just seeing the city of Chicago, but also trying to understand the experiences of those runners around her. And because I wasn't focused on my own goal, I was able to be more immersed in the experiences of others. And so through that experience, one of the things I noticed as a part of running a marathon is that there are people of all backgrounds of all body shapes out there doing it because I was able to be a spectator within the race, so to speak. And really anytime I've spectated a race, you'll notice that the spectrum is broad and massive as to what backgrounds, genders, races, ethnicities, body shapes and sizes are represented within the corrals at a race. Certainly at the marathon distance, that's true, but it's really true at all distances. And so that experience helped me really understand that this sport isn't about looking a certain way. It's about what your body can do and what you can train it to do. And anybody can do it if they're willing to put in the work. So that's what I'm talking about here in owning it. There are, there are many people I coach that might say they're unhappy with how their body looks. 
But if we switch the dialogue to what can you do now, especially as it relates to what you could do maybe five years from or five years ago after much rigorous training, the difference may be dramatic and that they're able to do dramatically more because they've been putting in the work. And so part of this is celebrating and being excited about the work you can do, the miles you can put in, the long runs you can do, the speed work you can do versus being obsessed with how your body looks. Because ultimately in our running journey, the proof is in the the work, the outcomes, not from the scale, but from the clock. And if you can celebrate those achievements, the physical manifestation of all of your work, then that can replace the inner dialogue that might say that your body needs to look a certain way. So again, focus on what your body can do and not what it looks like, which to me is a good segue into the physical side of this discussion, which is to say that it's not about achieving a certain race weight. That to me is a mythology is mythology. It's about the work. It's about healthy inputs leading to healthy outcomes. Healthy inputs leading to healthy outcomes. So instead of focusing on achieving a certain number on the scale, we should be focusing on fueling our body, being healthy and strong and well-nourished and well-prepared for the goal that you're trying to achieve. If you focus on that process, then your body will naturally find the weight, whether you measure it or not, it'll naturally find the weight that will help you achieve your goals. Now, before we go too much further, I have to talk about perhaps the the other side, because there will be many people that will rigorously argue with me. Well, of course, if you weigh less, then you're going to run faster. So of course it matters. If you weigh less, you're going to run faster. So of course, of course it matters. I will hear that argument nonstop from other coaches and sometimes from athletes that are stuck in that paradigm of thinking. But let me give you a couple of examples. One of them is a personal example. So for me, there was a time when I became obsessed with tracking calories and really making sure that I was burning all of the calories I was taking in and I was tracking all of this very rigorous, rigorously through my fitness pal. And while I think I was getting enough total calories and maybe total weight didn't become a problem, I did become a little bit obsessed also at that time with with trying to think that I needed to hit a certain weight in order to achieve my running goals. And so there was a race weight in my mind as I was doing this process. And that behavior ultimately led to underfueling because while maybe I was getting enough total calories, I wasn't getting a diversity of foods and a diversity of nutrients. And so what happened for me in that situation was I went into the Boston Marathon one year, perhaps ready to run my best marathon ever but I finished that race walking the final five miles with a stress fracture because my body wasn't properly fueled. And even though the fitness was there, my body could not hold up for 26.2 miles because of the, the way I was treating it 
in the way I wasn't properly fueling it and nourishing it, which led to the worst marathon time that I've ever run instead of the best. And so in that situation, while I did achieve a certain quote unquote race weight, I ultimately ended up not performing because because the process to get there was not appropriately executed. I was more focused on certain outcomes on the scale instead of fueling my body in a certain way that would allow me to achieve my goals. Fast forward a year and a half from that point, I was actually about 10 pounds heavier. Not that the scale matters, but I would ultimately PR about 18 months later at a race in Houston, weighing 10 pounds more. I I, I weighed, in that case, out of curiosity, in that whole season, that block of training, I wasn't focusing on calorie counting. I wasn't focused on weight, and I didn't weigh myself that entire season, except right before the race, just to see out of curiosity where I was. And ultimately, I PR'd on that day 18 months later in a completely different situation because my body was well-fueled, was well-nourished, and therefore I was able to achieve my goals. So that's one personal example. Another example that I've seen countless times, especially given the heat and humidity that we have here in Texas, is that hydration is a critical factor. And so sometimes it's easy to talk about this as an example because if you go in dehydrated to a run, and you're not going to perform well, potentially, on a hot summer day here in Texas because your body doesn't have the water that it needs to ultimately cool itself as well as to perform respiration. And so if that's true, then you might overheat. You might ultimately have heat stroke. And even though in a slightly dehydrated state, you're going to weigh less than if you're fully hydrated, you, are, you will not perform better in that case, because you don't have the water you need to actually perform respiration and then to cool your body to manage the conditions that you're in. So in that case, as it relates to hydration, that's a clear example of how weight and performance correlates in the opposite direction. Now, many people will say, well, that's a really specific example, Chris. But I can tell you that... There have been plenty of athletes that I've coached that may have been lighter on the scale because they weren't nourishing properly, that didn't achieve their goals versus athletes that weren't worried about that, that did achieve their goals because they were properly fueled, hydrated, and nourished. And that is where the magic is. Not worrying about the scale because ultimately that's just a side effect, almost a symptom of the appropriate inputs. And remember, as I said, healthy inputs equals healthy outcomes. The other important thing to note here is that our body changes as we evolve and as we age. So the happy place for our body in our 20s is going to be different from the happy place for our body in our 30s is going to be different for the happy place in our 40s, etc. And so as the body evolves, as circumstances change, the body knows where it needs to be 
but we cannot arbitrarily assign a, a place for it to be on the scale because that presumes that we know that we actually understand and have all of the biological parameters and the DNA parameters baked into some algorithm that we can spit out and say, yes, I need to be X on the scale in order to perform. We can't do that. We can't know that. The only way for your body to get to that happy place is through its own mechanisms. The only way is through its own mechanisms. And so how then do we get to that happy place and let our body operate as it should and use its own device to determine where we need to be in order to perform without shortcuts? So how do we do that? So let's talk about that. So step one, train. Step one, train as you should as a runner, which includes all of the things I talked about in episode 219. Get out, move your body consistently, do workouts periodically, making sure you're balancing the stress and rest equation so that you have active rest built in. It's that simple. Train as you should as a runner. Run consistently, do workouts occasionally, and then balance active rest so that you get the right stress rest balance so that your body can ultimately recover and grow. But if you do that and you do that consistently, then your body will naturally change and evolve in a direction that will lean towards performance over time. So that one's pretty straightforward. Point number one, and if you need to go back to episode 219, which uh, where I talk about the basics of training then that might be a good refresher there. But newsflash, train as you normally would. Number two, nourish your body. Fuel your body so that it has the appropriate fuel to execute your training. And I'm not a nutritionist, but I do really love Michael Pollan's quote on this, which is, eat whole foods, not too much, mostly plants. Eat whole foods, not too much, mostly plants pretty simple equation. If you fuel your body with quality foods in an amount that satiates you, that that allows you to listen to your hunger cues and fuel appropriately and match those hunger cues appropriately, then you're going to be fueling your body in a way that will help it execute your training. Now, I really do believe that there are concepts here around intuitive eating that you can use if you really just listen to your body if you listen to your hunger cues if you listen to your cravings then your body's going to tell you what you need and when that being said there's actually a really good way to think about this built into matt fitzgerald's book on race weight actually and while the book i think it sometimes strays a little bit from my thinking here One of the things I like about that book is he has a food quality index built into that book. And so he talks about instead of the uh, the idea of counting calories, he talks about making sure that you get the appropriate servings of food based on their food quality. And so it's really similar to this concept, which is get enough quality food and you'll be able to fuel your body appropriately for your training. So make sure you're nourished based on your hunger cues and based on quality food that you're putting in your mouth. Now, obviously, 
that doesn't change the fact that periodically in moderation you can splurge. And I am a big believer in that. At least for me, I need it in order to have balance as it relates to my fueling, that periodic splurge. But what you need there will vary depending on you as an individual. So nourish your body. As Michael Pollan said, eat whole foods, not too much, mostly plants. Third, hydrate well. Hydrate well. And this is going to depend a little bit depending on your climate. But I can tell you, and and for Texas at least, it depends on the season as well. I can tell you during the summer, this is a more difficult challenge for me than it is in the wintertime. But making sure that you're well hydrated throughout the day with electrolytes is key couple of things here. One is I don't think we quite recognize the impact of our food on our hydration, but it's pretty magical if you happen to ever go on a juice cleanse, which I don't necessarily recommend, but I've done. But when I do that, I actually don't need a lot of supplemental water because you're getting your, and I certainly don't need electrolytes because you're getting the actual hydration from your food, from fruits and vegetables, which happens to be naturally balanced to to meet your body's hydration's needs and so making sure that you're getting fruits and vegetables and the associated liquid inside of those will help with hydration but then of course you supplement with water i know for this will vary depending on the person but i can tell you for me that typically means three liters of water per day with one of those liters in the summer, making sure that that's supplemented with electrolytes in order to get my electrolyte balance in the right place. Honestly, though, during the winter time and, and really even through the summer, I don't necessarily track it too rigorously in terms of the hydration that I'm getting. The thing I'm watching for is actually, and this will sound gross, but actually the color of my urine. And what you're looking for here is a very faint yellow. Not too clear, because if it's too clear, that means you're perhaps not getting the electrolytes you need to absorb the hydration that you're taking in. And then, of course, if it's too yellow, then you're probably not getting enough hydration overall. And so a very faint yellow as much as possible when urinate is key. I think that's especially true after exercise and after long runs, making sure you get back to that well-hydrated, quote, clear, slight yellow urine state as quickly as possible. Then that is a good visual indicator that you're getting the hydration you need. So train well, nourish well, hydrate well. Fourth thing, strength train, strength train. Strength training is obviously critical to neuromuscular performance so that you can get the most out of your running. But it's also a part of metabolic performance. And when you're strength training, your body is actually going to work more, actually at rest, because it's having to rebuild those muscles that you tore down during strength training. And that kicks up that metabolism and helps you achieve a better metabolic state as it leads to performance. So strength training a couple of times a week as a runner is going to be critical not only, not only for running performance but also to get you to that metabolic state that's going to help you perform optimally. Now, this can be as little as one time a week for those that are just getting started, but I think two is probably best for most runners, three for some who can handle it. 
but even two sessions a week of 20 minutes at a time is going to make a massive difference, not only in neuromuscular performance, but also, as I said, metabolic performance. So strength train. Four things so far. Train properly, nourish well, hydrate well, strength train. And then the last thing is simply go race. Go race. And races will give you input, whether they be time trials or actual races on a course or virtual races during the time of the pandemic. But if you race, then that's going to give you a performance outcome and indicator that is ultimately going to be the thing that helps you tweak the other four things I talked about in order to get the results that you want. Now, even race times aren't necessarily the end all and be all. As I often say, there are training results and there's racing results and they're not necessarily correlated. And so you have to take each race result in context. But once you get a race result, that is an indicator of performance that you can then reflect back, use to reflect back on your training, your nutrition, your hydration, your strength training in order to potentially make tweaks so that you can continue to learn and evolve as an athlete. So racing is an important part of the process. And ultimately, if you're listening to this show, then you're probably aspiring to some race outcome, to some race goal. And by doing prep races, you're going to get information and data. By doing time trials, you're going to be getting information and data that will help you then learn and tweak your training so that you can continue to evolve as an athlete. That's the number that matters, not the number on the scale, is the number in the races, because that ultimately is likely what many of us are striving to. So don't pick an arbitrary number and say, if I'm not at X weight, I won't be able to perform. Don't worry about that. In many cases, you it's not even worth it, in my opinion, to step on a scale because it doesn't matter. What matters is, are you taking the steps that you need? Are you doing the healthy inputs of running, of eating and fueling, of hydrating, and of strength training that will ultimately lead to the outcomes that you want, which isn't the number on the scale, but it is actually a number on the time clock at a finish line. That's, that's what matters. So that is where you focus. Healthy inputs equals healthy outcomes. And the outcomes that we're striving for, again, is not a number on a scale, but is a time on a race clock. And so use those times that you get on a race clock as lessons and inputs to potentially change what you're doing on the other four variables. All right. So there you go. That's my thesis on why race weight is total mythology. I know that I will probably get a lot of emails about this one, many that will vigorously disagree with me, but that's okay. This is how I approach it. This is how I approach it with athletes. This is never a conversation that we have about race weight. We're always talking instead about the healthy inputs so that we can get those healthy outcomes. I hope this was helpful to you. Certainly, if you're struggling with this in training, reframe the discussion on the process, on the inputs that can get you to those goals of yours. All right, so we'll wrap it here. Thanks, as always, for listening. 
If you'd like to learn more about Rogue, you can go to roguerunning.com or follow us on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook at Rogue Running. Until next week, we'll talk to you then.